0: Welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, coming to you live via digital recording from the Model Railroad Hobbyist West Coast Recording Complex. Joining me tonight is Marty McGurk, who is located in our East Coast Recording Complex. Marty's well-known throughout the uh, hobby due to his years with various model railroad publications and as vice president of product development with Intermountain Railway, which I find just fascinating as can be. My early career was in uh, manufacturing of real railroad cars. So I'm just really looking forward to talking to you about that stuff. Welcome aboard, Marty.
1: Oh, thanks, Paul. Glad to be here.
0: And you're in where? Manassas, Virginia?
1: That's correct. Yeah, right on the, right on the shores of Scenic Bull Run.
0: Okay, which is uh, one of your handles, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's my Skype handle, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah, Bull, Bull Run is, of course, uh, in Virginia, we don't have rivers or streams. We have runs. And so Bull Run is one of a number of them that are around here and uh, probably most famous as the site of two Civil War battles. But you'd have to talk to my good friend Bernie Kempinski to get more details about that.
0: Okay. You've uh, been in model railroading since, what, late 70s?
1: Uh, I'd, I'd say so. I, I got my start when my parents had we had uh, when my parents moved here from Ireland. We befriended a couple of people that lived down the street from us, and they had had two sons. That by the time I was a kid, their sons were were older, but did not have children of their own. And they knew that I was interested in trucks and trains and planes and, and anything any kind of machine. And so when I was I don't know seven or eight years old. They gave my parents, as a surprise, their son's old Lionel train sets.
0: No kidding.
1: Yeah, and there were, I mean, all kinds of neat stuff in there. And I just remember riding home one day in the car from visiting their house and having, like, what at the time seemed like the biggest box I'd ever seen in my life was sitting next to me and my dad wouldn't tell me what it was a few days later it was my birthday they let me open that up on my birthday and and find all that stuff in there and I remember having to steal wool all the track I mean some of the stuff had been in storage for 20 years probably by that point and uh, and I I played with that a lot and that's probably where I got my start and that was sometime in the late 60s early 70s
0: okay and I remember getting doing about the the same thing, just a reverse role, when I uh, was in college and came across all my Lionel stuff. I went, you know, I'm just never going to use this or play with it. So I gave it to a seven-year-old down the down the street and got to go down and watch him set it up and play with it. So, yeah, that's a that's a win-win for both parties in that.
1: Yeah, and, and over the years, I, I don't have any of that stuff anymore. I, at least I don't think I do. Uh I've either traded it or sold it or given it away. Quite frankly, none of it by the time, certainly by the time I got done with it, none of it was collectible in the sense of, uh, <laughs> of being worth anything to a collector. Uh, it was it was uh, road hard and put up wet, as they say.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, Okay.
1: But it was, uh, yeah, but I, I even repainted some of the locomotives and I, I did all kinds of heinous things to them. But I had a, had a really good time with them. And then, oh, I don't know, uh, a few years after I got that, I started looking at at buying more stuff you know all model railroads want more stuff and i started getting uh, some of the model railroad magazines and i thought this is really neat and i wanted to go and and get more switches and more tracks just pricing even at that time what lionel was compared to what i saw in the hobby shop as the ho stuff seemed much more reasonably priced so i started getting ho stuff and and i always liked the fact that, that ho had two rails and lionel had that silly rail down the middle so uh Although after I tried to, to, to set up what turned out to be my first reversing <laughs> reversing loop on an HO layout, I'm not sure I thought Lionel was as stupid with three rails anymore because it obviously makes it a lot easier to to uh, wire. But yeah, uh, yeah. But I but I had uh, I guess I got started in HO scale. Uh, my first HO train set was a uh, at, at that time the Chesapeake in Ohio and Western Maryland and. Baltimore and Ohio, it all merged, and they created a new corporate identity called the Chessie System.
0: Okay, and early 70s.
1: Early 70s, and it was just wonderful because all of a sudden trains were bright yellow and bright blue and bright red. You know, they were really bright colors, and I thought this was really neat. And Lionel had made an HO scale set of the Chessie Steam special. What they did is take their Freedom Train locomotive and, and basically painted it in the Chessie System steam steam scheme, which was a... Something that was actually running around the country at the time. And I went in the hobby shop, and I thought that was the neatest thing in the world. But, of course, I couldn't afford that. But what there was there was something called an Athern Hustler. And that was painted in the Chessie System paint scheme also. So I figured, well, that is as close as I was going to get to Chessie System. So I, I got myself the Athern Hustler. and and learn the the magic and joy of rubber band drives and everything else, uh, none of which ever worked very well. But that was my first HO train set. It wasn't long before I I graduated to a couple of other uh, locomotives and cars, AHM and and a few other brands that were... uh, They certainly weren't state-of-the-art back then, but they weren't bad. And then, oh, I used to ride my bike about 10 miles to a hobby shop in a town called Norwalk. I I grew up in a town called Fairfield in Connecticut, and I used to ride my bike sort of through the back roads and and avoiding the main streets to a a hobby shop in a town called Norwalk, a couple of towns away. And that place actually sold things like Athern and model die casting and kits, Mm -hmm. which the, the store that was down the street from the house just strictly sold, you know, train sets and some magazines and books and Lionel stuff. But this was a more serious HO scale hobby shop, so that was the first time I'd seen things like Atheron, you know, HO scale boxcar kits or Atheron locomotives. So uh, that's okay. probably when I really, really seriously got into HO scale. And by that point, I had discovered the Central Vermont Railway and decided that I wanted to model the Central Vermont Railway. So I used my my caddy money, my caddying money over the years, over a couple of years, to buy uh, Atheron Jeep Nines. And the CV had a whole fleet of Jeep 9s, and I got to know how to use an airbrush. First, I tried a brush. That didn't work out too well. Then I learned how to use an airbrush. uh, And I eventually had as many Jeep 9s as the Central Vermont did until they wrecked a couple of theirs. Okay. Well, that's that's that's, sort of where I got my start.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, parallel path here. I got out of college in 72 and went to work in the rail industry. And for that Christmas, which was the first Christmas I was married, my wife goes, well, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, well, I'd like an HO train set. And she just looked at me like I'd grown a third eye. And I said, I'm serious. And she goes, okay. So by the time Christmas rolled around, we had this, we were renting a three-bedroom house, and it was just her and I and a dog. So I had taken one of these spare bedrooms in the closet. I had been buying Flex Track and, like you say, Aether and Blue Box kits and a set of uh, Alco PA, you know, PBPAs, and had them secreted away in there. So, you know, she gives me this little train set, and I set it up, and she goes, where did I she, – she's thinking this was all crammed in that little box. box. Oh, yeah. yeah, I didn't have the heart to tell her that I had uh, jumped the gun a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's uh, – yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of us become – we go through a phase in the hobby where we become acquirers. Yes. I think there's a number of phases of, you know, the, the stages of, of model railroading, and one of them is the acquisition phase, and and we sort of buy everything on flange wheels. And I've got a, my, one of my sons is actually going through that right now. He's just, he hasn't met a train he didn't want to buy yet. Yes. Uh, and so you can't possibly teach that out of people. You can't, they don't, they don't benefit from your experience, and of course, Ultimately, what ends up happening is you go through the deaccession phase, you know, to yes. use, the, use a fancy museum term. You know, you you go look around and say, what am I going to do with, you know, 440s, PAs, yes. you know, AC4400s, and, and, you know, 25 Walter steel mill kits. I
0: mean, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a uh, a poster on one of the uh, model railroad forums I was reading last week, and he made, you know, he replied to whatever the issue was, and he he just makes a statement. He says, Well, I've got 230 SD40 2s. And I, ju- I just had to stop and ponder that statement and try and visualize 240 SD42s. Where would you put them all?
1: Oh, well, you put them under the layout. I guess that's where you put them I and mean, there's an awful lot of layouts that if you unscrewed every leg that's holding the layout up <laughs> they drop about three inches and just land on the boxes of all the stuff that's underneath them and and one of my goals with this layout and i'm not quite there yet although i'm getting there is to have absolutely nothing underneath the layout i mean that is i, I don't want to have piles of boxes under yeah. there so if it's something that doesn't go on the layout it's going out of the basement basically is what it amounts to
0: well do you um, keep your boxes
1: I keep some of the empty boxes, but I do. I do have. A, we have an attic here that I just sort of throw them up in there because once they're out of the box, I don't worry about them too much. You know, it's that's only if I have to sell them or move them. So, I do keep some some of the empty uh, rolling stock boxes. Okay. But uh, for the for the most part, of course, one of the the problems back in the old days, I don't have too many Atherin Blue Box cars anymore. I, I actually don't think I have any Atherin cars in the layout. Hmm. Uh, but one of the things back in the old days you notice, was you'd build the Atherner model die casting car. I forgot which one it was. Maybe it was model die casting. But I do remember when you put the KD couplers on it, you couldn't get the car back in the box. <laughs> and that always struck me as being really strange. And so when I <laughs> when I had a chance to actually impact that, I made sure that all the boxes at Intermountain, you could actually put the car back in the box after you put it together. That was a minor little – that was one minor little uh, – i guess uh it was a pet peeve of mine for a long time so i made sure that all the intermountain boxes would all the intermountain cars excuse me could fit back in the boxes after they were assembled the machinations of going through the packaging for the assembled cars is always fascinating but i always made sure that the assembled cars could fit in the box uh, with katie couplers and then to sort of, when we started using katie couplers that became a, an automatic a given but at first, we didn't use Katie couplers, and Intermountain couplers and Katie couplers are slightly different sizes. Uh-huh. And so when they make the form-fitting packaging for those things, the very first go-around, they made form-fitting packaging. The, the blister inserts, the plastic clamshells that go inside the box. Yes. Well, originally, they were styrofoam, but then later, they became uh, just plastic. And the inter, the cars that had Intermountain couplers, they wouldn't fit the blisters until we, we modified the blister enough to allow the... Uh, to allow the Katie Coupler cars to fit in there. So that was one of the things we had to do.
0: Well, we have moved a number of times. I think this is house number 17 for us. And like a lot of people, you know, I pitched the boxes. And I can tell you that I don't care whose car it is, and I don't care how well you pack it, how you, you know, put dunnage in there to absorb shock. The moving industry can trash a car in in a heartbeat.
1: Oh, sure. Well, I, was, I spent a lot of years in the Navy, so I know all about moving. Okay. And the thing I always found was a challenge was moving uh, not so much the cars or even the locomotives, but mm-hmm. moving the structures. Okay. That is, that is a real challenge, and, and the best way I've found to do that is to actually take the structure – and gently place it in a very large plastic bag of some sort. And the main purpose of the plastic bag is to is to have a place to collect all the broken pieces.'ll oh. all be in one place. <laughs> and then you and then you tie that bag up and then you put that in peanuts inside the box and you try to make it uh, as few box as few structures as possible per box. And I found that if I did that, uh, the structures tended to last, but I I've had plenty of structures that by the time I've moved, I'm like, why did I waste the time and effort packing them up? Because they're just, they basically got re-kitted. But,
0: oh, yeah. I've got a collection because when we were kids, I mean, it was sandbox toys, what they called sandbox toys, and they were the big pressed metal trucks and cranes and bulldozers. and
1: Oh, Tonka trucks. I love those things.
0: I've got a collection of the, the Depkey and then also the S- Smith-Miller and because that's what we played with as kids. And, yeah, these things will weigh 10, 12 pounds, especially some of the ladder, the fire engines because of the big ladders and stuff are, are valuable. And the, and the mover's packing them when we left Ohio to come to Arizona. And she's wrapping them up and she's laying them in a train box. I'm <laughs> going, no, no, this is like packing a cat and a dog in the same box, you know, that <laughs> – those plastic uh, HO cars won't uh, stand a chance against, you know, thirteen pounds of uh, Smith Miller fire engine.
1: <laughs> well, I, I have no idea how we how we got off on this subject. I'm not sure how we got down
0: this. Well, path. packaging it's a it's a packaging thing. So,
1: I can tell you a funny story about packaging.
0: Tell me a funny story about packaging. You,
1: there's actually a funny story, but I think it's a funny story. When I was at Intermountain, we we had. Regularly would get emails from, from what was called our engineer, and I, and I use that term loosely. He was a uh, he probably what we would call a product coordinator here. Okay. And what he was is he was your representative with the manufacturing company, and this particular one was Sandican. And and so the, and this young man's name was uh, was Sun. That was his first name. And they all had they had one requirement to be to be engineers at Sandican. They had to be proficient in all three languages. They had to be able to speak English speak and write English, they had to be able to speak and write Mandarin, and they had to be able to speak and write Cantonese. And so, because the business end of the company down in Hong Kong communicated in Cantonese, the manufacturing end inside China communicated in Mandarin, and of course when they talked to us, they talked in English. So it was. It led to some interesting discussions. But anyway, he sent us an, an email one time, and all this communication, of course, is done by email. When I first started Intermount, it was all done by fax machine. You can okay. comprehend trying to manage products by fax machine. And, and before that, it was done by telephone, which was just torturous because there's, a, <laughs> there's an awful lot of stuff that gets missed in, the, in of course, the verbal translation. Uh, but he started sending us these emails telling us, oh, when you come over here next time, we'll do a, we'll do a uh, packaging strength test for these new plastic blisters. This is when we went from the form-fitting styrofoam blisters to the both sides of a plastic clamshell. And they were very enthused about, about this new blister technology, uh, and they wanted to make sure that we, we understood it. And, of course, you, know, I, you get stuff from China now, and it has those stupid clamshell blisters, and it's usually you end up cutting your finger trying to open the damn things. But anyway, yes. <laughs> uh, so he was very excited about this. So he says, you can come over and see the, the, the packaging uh, test. We have it scheduled for 4 o'clock on Tuesday or whatever day it was, right? So the appointed day and hour come and and we go to the sixth floor testing lab at the factory. So we go upstairs, sixth floor of the factory, and I go in there and there's a guy in there in a lab coat. And I'm expecting, you know, some sort of, you know, machine that's going to put pressure on a box and show me what the crush strength is of the box or anything else. And and I'm expecting to see some sort of fancy, you know, digital readouts. I didn't know what I was expecting. But what it was basically was they brought... The, the product in and it turned out to be a titchy hopper car because at the time we were having titchy cars assembled and decorated in, in china for Intermountain and they showed me the, the car and wanted to make sure that uh, this is all being done by the way with gestures you know they wanted okay. to make sure i saw the car was all complete you know it's all all the pieces are there it's all assembled and then they took it they took it and put it in the packaging and wanted to show me the packaging and and see how it clips and it seals both sides are very tight and very, you know, car does not shake or anything else. Okay, this is good. And then they slid the, the packaging into the box. And the big pressure test was this guy walked over to an open window and threw the box out the window.
0: From the sixth floor. Yeah.
1: And it landed on the roof. about It was about 40 feet down to, a, to another roof that was below us. so It was like the second floor from the factory, you know, and landed down there and there was a guy down there waiting on the roof and the package dropped and fell on the floor and, and he had to pick it up and run it upstairs to us. And that was the packaging drop test.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. it's (laughs) Kind of hard to quantify those uh, impact stresses and stuff.
1: I thought, all right, well, it's, this thing is either going to be in one piece or it's going to be, you know, busted to smithereens. One of the two and, and the, and the purpose of the exercise will be to show, see our new packaging will improve all this. And believe it or not, the only thing that broke was the glued-on coupler box lid on one end of the car, which I thought was very impressive. And at that point, we decided we'd start screwing the coupler box lids on to prevent that problem. But the uh, <laughs> that was the packaging drop test.
0: Well, when you were describing, you know, how the guy's using hand gestures, I'm I'm getting a mental image of Vanna White in a lab coat doing her, you know, pointing to letters as uh, – uh, he it describes all, the features, it was all
1: very animated, and the and the funniest thing was to look at the direct translations of. Uh, we would send over painting and lettering diagrams. Yes. And, and one of the things I've heard people comment about over the years is, "Oh, this color's wrong. How could you possibly get this color wrong?" Well, you're not only dealing with a three-step process of communication language, you're also dealing with very often, you know, printers that print things out the wrong color, or printers that, that aren't color matched correctly, or quite frankly, some people are just colorblind. I mean, I really think that they're colorblind. Uh, most of the color choices were done by Pantone colors. And the and if I don't know if you're familiar with Pantone or not, but it's basically if you, if you picture a, uh, like the paint samples you see at the paint store. Yes you get those little strips that have like 15 variations of cream you know and you go, wow, this this all look the same color, but they're slightly different from top to bottom. Well, a Pantone deck is something used in the printing industry and it's a standard for color reproduction and it's it's literally thousands of colors on this pantone deck of different shades of, of each of the primary colors and secondary colors. So you would say that red would be I don't know the number, I don't remember the numbers, but you mm-hmm. might say, Red thirty three seventy seven and that's a and they could go to their Pantone deck and look at red thirty three seventy seven and they'd be looking at the exact same red that you were looking at, theoretically. I'm not sure that ever really happens, but uh that's that's how we would do the colors. But also with the with the colors we'd also have in the artwork, of course, the stuff that was going to be printed. And any of the decoration that was going to be printed on the models and They, I just remember one thing. For example, the Missouri Pacific uh, Eagle logo, which is sort of a stylized, stretched eagle, yes, like a bird, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the the literal Chinese translation was "skinny chicken." (laughs) That being written on a piece of the artwork, you know, place "skinny chicken" here, and so it was. It was kind of crazy stuff like that, and they were uh, they were very big on. They had certain ones they really liked doing. They liked certain locomotives and paint schemes, and other ones they didn't like. Uh, and it was a matter of taste, too. They really loved doing the war bonnet. They were really fired up about the war bonnet. Um, the one time we did the, the first run of war bonnets, I think, were all just sort of a silvery gray for the, for the Santa Fe red and silver war bonnet. Mm-hmm. But then we, we decided with the N-scale F3s, we decided we wanted to do a uh, two-tone silver and gray color because those locomotives actually had stainless steel panels along the side and had sections that were painted silver.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So what we did on the, on the models was we actually wanted them to print bright silver or bright aluminum, you know, stainless steel color on one section and then have the rest of it be painted silver. And that was really difficult for them to understand. They, they really thought we were screwing it up by doing that. <laughs> so the first sample I got, was i mean it looked like a shaving mirror it was so shiny it was just the whole thing was, you know the roof and everything else said, oh, this is all wrong you guys do this it's supposed to be trying to explain it to them again the next one was like dull gray I'm like no that's
0: not right
1: So we went through probably five iterations of that until they figured out what they what they really wanted to uh, what we were truly really trying to do and, and very often we'd send them a prototype picture uh, I'm not sure they ever really looked at them'm uh, not convinced <laughs> yeah. they ever did and uh, So it was, it was interesting. Um, it, was, it was very interesting. Most of the products we did in Intermountain, uh, at least while I was there, the tooling was done in the United States. So the plastic parts were made in Colorado, tooled in Colorado or in California, depending on who was tooling them. And they were then shipped over to China and then decorated and assembled and packaged in China and then shipped back to the States. And distributed from Colorado. So that that allowed us, a, there was a couple of advantages we got from that. One was we were able to control the production quantities a little bit. If, you know, if we only wanted to order 1,200 of a thing, we could just send them 1,200 sets of parts, and there was no way they could possibly make more than that. Uh, they often wanted to do minimum runs of, say, 5,000 units. Okay. And some of these things, you just cannot move that many units. And so we would do, we would do much smaller production runs. Uh, Okay. the industry has evolved since then into the point that most of the manufacturers are doing much smaller production runs than they were five or six or seven years ago.
0: Okay, they just learned the hard lesson of stock sitting on a shelf.
1: I think so. I think that's what it is. Uh, There was an awful there was an awful glut of Proto 2000, you know, E units and Jeep nines and Jeep 30s on the market for a long time. And they were all made at the same time. They weren't you know, there wasn't a number of production runs. They were all made. Early on, and then people started to realize this is uh, just because just you can make, you know, uh, I have no idea what the quantities are, but just because you can make 10000 or something doesn't mean you're going to sell 10000 or something.
0: Right. Well, let me ask you, because the Intermountain part is just fascinating. How do you paint and then letter, uh, especially on a higher-end car like an Intermountain, Exact Rail, that level of product, how mm-hmm. do you actually paint and letter? What's that process?
1: It depends. Okay. Uh, it how you paint and letter it, well I mean you paint it. If it's if it's something like a one color boxcar or covered hopper or whatever, yeah. you basically paint it by by standing in an industrial spray, spray booth, basically a room with a spray gun in your hand that looks like a supercharged airbrush and same thing they use to paint cars. Okay. Automobiles. And you basically you spray it the color that you're gonna paint it. I mean that's that's sort of how you do a one color paint job. It's it's no more complicated than that. Uh, the paint that's used is very often, at least in China, was very very often um, automotive lacquers. So it was enamel paints. So model railroaders would just have fits when they'd call us and want to know what Floquil or Polyscale paint did we use on our locomotives. Well, the answer was <laughs> we didn't. I mean we used, you know, we, we matched it to a color. And, and had the paint custom matched. And over the years, we ended up, oh, to get away from that the Pantone thing we talked about a few minutes ago. And yes. What we ultimately ended up doing at Intermountain, and they probably still do this, is over time, rather than use those Pantone colors, we created our own colors. So we had, for example, the red on a Santa Fe F unit, on the warbonnet F units, was red number seven, which is which is utterly meaningless to anybody else. I mean, I, I don't know what Santa Fe called the red, but we but we called it red number seven. So we could tell the factory in China, paint this red number seven, paint this silver number four, which was the stainless steel piece. Paint this silver number six, which was the sort of the more muted silver color, the flat silver color, basically. Mm-hmm. And over time, we ended up with I don't know. 40 or 50 by the time I left we probably had 50 red that we used all of which were different variations of boxcar red or locomotive reds or or whatever Uh, there obviously wasn't as many oranges but there were a few oranges you know there was and so we just did it that way just because it made it easier for us to communicate with the factory what color to paint things Uh, to go back to your other question when you're doing multiple color paint schemes there were two ways to do that. Most of the parts we made at Intermountain we tried to design the cars. Uh, early on Intermountain's cars were designed to be sold as kits and they were designed to be sold in the United States as kits, which meant that they were painted and decorated in the US. Okay. Which really meant you tried to make it as you tried to minimize the the labor, the handwork involved in painting the kit and decorating it. So what you would do is if we made all the ends separate, for example, making the ends of the car separate from the body of the car and the roof was separate and, you know, etc making those parts separate, not only enabled us to do different variations of roofs, so different, you know, raised panel roofs or Z panel roofs or X panel roofs or whatever, but it also allowed us to paint the roof black and the body red and the ends black and put it all together in a kit and not have to mask pieces off. Because if I, it's like a model. If you have a model and the ends, roof, and body are all molded together and you need to do a multicolored paint scheme, you have to mask the ends from the, from the body, correct? Yes. So to avoid doing that, we made the cars purposely in such a way that we didn't have to mask them. So that's where the kits originated. When we started doing the assembly work in China, we would send the parts over to China. Very often we would pre-paint and pre-decorate the parts in Colorado. And just have them assemble them in China. If we had the production capacity to do that, we would do it. Uh, over time, what became very obvious to us is that the Chinese were much better at decoration than we were. So we set out to figure out why that was. Uh, what we found was we were using uh, uh, cars are, are printed, or the lettering is done with pad print. And what pads? that is pads. Yeah. What it is basically is you have a have a machine that has a as a block, a metal block that the car actually fits in. They slide it right, it's a fixture. It goes right in and it sits very tight in this fixture, so it won't move or shift. And then you have a movable arm with a uh, with a rubber pad on it. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, that's basically what it is. There are different shapes depending on what kind of lettering it's going to be. And then you, you would make a plate, and the plate has the lettering, so it, it has actually the, the raised lettering on it. And you would take this uh, this plate and put it in the, in a reservoir of ink. The cars are lettered with printer's ink, not paint. Because printer's ink is much much more viscous than, than paint is. So you would fill this little reservoir with printer's ink, and you'd put your plate in there, and then you had basically a squeegee that would run across this plate and scrape off all the excess ink except for the area with the lettering. And then this pad would drop down, pick up the lettering like a rubber stamp, like a mechanized rubber stamp and then move it to the car, the position of the car, and drop it down and, and strike it, and that would actually pr- transfer the lettering from that plate onto the car. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it's an extremely simple process. It's very difficult to describe.
0: <laughs> okay. Are you, are you employing robot arms to do this so that you can program movement?
1: Well, no, it's usually done. It's a, very, it's a, it's a mechanical arm, but it's, it's usually manually operated. There's kind of an on and off switch. Okay. And what you what you're really adjusting is the force of the of the pad coming down on the surface you're printing. So these things can be used to print like a round surface, like a coffee mug. You could use it for. Okay. Uh, I mean, it can be a or it's say a tank car. It can be a, a flat surface like the side of a box car. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know. I'm trying to think of something else that we would pad print because we did other work other than model railroading work, but we would sometimes pad print. Uh, the thing that they that some newspapers stick on your mailbox yes you know that has like the you know the new newspaper wall street journal or whatever on it printed on the side of it yeah that would that could be pad printed okay did we did those for the denver post for a, a large number of t- uh, you know uh, we did a lot of sort of these little plastic tubes and printed them for the denver post at one point uh, i do remember that so that'll, that's a very big printing job but that was that's the same principle it works the same way so these machines are not uncommon. I mean, they're they're used in all kinds of applications. They're not anything sp- special for model model railroading. We used plastic plates because and, and how you make the plate is you do the computer artwork. Uh, first we did hand artwork, later we did computer artwork, and you actually shoot a negative. You you actually expose the lettering onto it onto the surface. It's just like you're exposing it onto a piece of film. Okay. And so it has to be done in a dark room and everything else. And then you, you essentially etch the, the plate. You put it in an etching solution, and it etches away everything that isn't the raised lettering. So that's how we made the plates. Ours were plastic. They were kind of, were kind of a, a somewhat stiff plastic, uh, very flexible. But the ones in China were done on steel plates, which is a, requires a lot more caustic chemicals. Yeah. A lot more expensive but because they were in China and they were set up to do it, that's what they would use. The result was the small lettering was much easier to read and much clearer.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So you get much better results with steel plates than with plastic plates. Uh, but when you're doing a run of, say, 300 cars and you, for, a, you know, for a very short run, the cost per car of doing a steel plate is almost astronomical if you were to do it in the United States. Okay. Whereas plastic plates, we could do economically here in the U.S. And so over time, we figured out that the Chinese were much better at doing the plastic or the steel plates and and could do it for about the same price that we were able to do the plastic plates. So we had them do more and more of our lettering for us over time. Uh, that's how you do the lettering. The other thing you do with, with cars and locomotives is what you call masking. And it's uh, it's. Not quite as elaborate, not quite as simple as sort of cutting out strips of masking tape and, and sticking them on the side of the model. What they would actually do there is make a form-fitting mask, and it was essentially a very very thin uh, piece of essentially a piece of copper or brass with a um, with a rubber gasket on the edge. And they would take this and and again etch it through the same process they would use to make the, the regular plates. But when you got done, it would etch away everything that wasn't a certain color. Okay. So, for example, if you had something like a, uh, a New York Central lightning stripe diesel with, a, with the F unit, with the nose that's, you know, rounded, but then there's sort of this light gray, you know, for lack of a better term, a Z-shape a Z lettering, you know, a painting separation between the light gray and the dark gray. Yeah. And you would have this piece of brass that would actually, you could take it and put it over a shell, and it would fit perfectly on there and enable you to spray the light gray onto the shell. You would then take that off and put another mask on that would let you spray the two white lines that are separating the grays, the two color grays. And then you would put a third mask on and that would mask off the light gray and the white and then you could spray the dark gray.
0: Okay, that's amazing.
1: So that's how they do it. They would never let us see how they made those masks. Oh,
0: that was going to be my next question. How did you make these masks? That okay, was,
1: I, I mean, I could venture a guess at how they did it. I, I had a pretty good feeling by the time I left. I had figured out how they would do it, but they would never show it to me.
0: They'd show me anything
1: else. They would show me anything else. It, I think I'm fairly certain that's how they did it was through vacuum forming, Okay, through, through a series of of vacuum formed pieces of metal I guess is a bit or, you know vacuum formed masks of this whatever this sort of metal coated rubber is and I'm pretty sure what they did is they made them out of the out of the gasket material they vacuum formed that gasket material that actually formed the seal between the plastic and the and the uh, you know the shell right and then added the metal over it just to stiffen it so that they it wouldn't be destroyed during the production process
0: okay so the metal becomes just like a protective veneer
1: yeah, exactly. I don't think they were actually etching the metal. I think they were etching the gasket stuff, the, the okay. rubber, and then and then using the uh, the metal just to get just to things some rigidity. Uh, over time, they may have shown some of the other guys how they did it, but they certainly would never show me how they did it. And, and okay. I used to ask the guys from Atlas and Athern and all the other companies, you know, have you ever seen how they do that? <laughs> uh, I'd love to know. Let me know if you ever find out. So that was that was one thing they had figured out that we really none of us had ever quite figured out. And if you look at some American F units that are made and printed in the United States, yeah, uh, you can tell when you look at it. You will see an overstrike on the striping where it rounds the nose. Okay. You will see the striping. You know, say a yellow stripe that goes around the nose. Yes. You will see a section where it's a little darker, and it's obvious because if you're going to print it. And not paint that striping, you're going to have to hit it a couple of times to get it to, to register correctly, to to be you know to be to be opaque enough to look right. So there's you can always tell if an F unit was printed or if it was paint. The paint separations were done with paint, and uh, and any round nose diesel, not just an F unit, a PA, a C line, or any of those are like that. But that was uh, that was the one thing they never quite told us how they did.
0: Well, that's amazing.
1: But that's how they did it, and they would actually when we were doing new um, a new paint scheme. When we were going to do, say, a set of seven locomotive paint schemes, we'd have to send them, oh gosh, a couple of hundred shells for sampling. And I think this this process of making this this gasket material, I'm fairly certain what happened was the shell was destroyed. I think it went in some sort of chemical, and basically the plastic just melted away while it left the form, you know, the vacuum forming of however they did it. It, it destroyed the shell itself because they would go through a lot of shells when they were developing new paint jobs.
0: Kind of like a lost. Wax casting process.
1: Yeah, I think they were just they were just toast. I mean, it, it okay, was, but they got them so they would be perfectly form fitting. But that's uh, that's how that's done. So the, the F unit, any kind of a rounded nose diesel paint scheme is the most complicated thing to manufacture. Uh, other simple masking jobs, quite honestly, in at least in China, they would just set up a a series of templates and have people cut out masking tape. Patterns and stick them on. Okay. So if you're doing something that's a little bit less complicated, uh, they would actually hand mask management.
0: Okay, and of course so that's got to be labor intensive, but the per unit breakout of that is just insignificant. So,
1: well, I think I, I should I should say without going into a, I mean, and of course the inf- the numbers I have are five or six years old at this point, but right. So they're saying the exact number isn't going to do anybody any good, but. I've heard over the years a lot of people make comments about how cars can be assembled in China for 15 cents and 20 cents and everything else and that's just insane.
0: Insanely wrong or just insane that it may be accurate?
1: No, insanely wrong. Okay. It's it's in the 10 to 20 times more than that. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a lot more than people think it is. I mean, it's you know when you're selling a car for $27, what you're really selling it for when you're selling a car for $27, what you're really selling a car for is 40% off $27. So you're selling it for you know, a little bit more than half of that because that's the standard, that is the standard markup in the model railroad industry is 40%. So when your cost of the, of the materials to make the car is in the $3 to $4 range and your assembly and decorating and packaging costs and shipping costs are in the $7 range per car, $7 to $9 per car, there's not a lot of profit in there. Okay, uh, so so this idea that that the cars are being assembled in China for fifteen and twenty cents or fifty cents or whatever some of the crazy numbers I've seen people come up with is just patently wrong.
0: Okay, and so the manufacturer has to recover, you know, cover his fix nut to the distributor, the distributor to the dealer, and yeah, you know, for what we get when I look at the the detail of some of the cars that are out there now compared to. Just in contrast with what you know, you and I started out with on uh, Blue Box kits or MDC. I think it's a it's a whale of a bargain.
1: Yeah, and the the indication is, although everybody complains about the prices, or not everybody, but a lot of people complain about the prices. Uh, all indications are that that the quality is going up, but the price isn't necessarily coming down. I mean, if you you know if people wanted stuff that had all the parts molded on and were one piece bodies that the floor snapped into the into the body and you screwed right. on the truck and the coupler and uh, that certainly we you know we have the uh, we have the technology to do that it's not hard uh, but there doesn't seem to be any groundswell of support for doing that and no. The fact that, you know that Athern has gotten rid of the blue box cars and and I can't think of other than branch lines yardmaster car I can't think of any car that's come out in the last 10 years other than Accurail, and that's kind of been their their niche in the market, mm-hmm. but certainly it, it, it was doing molten on ladders and molded on grab irons is something we looked at at Intermountain at one point. We did a really close look at seeing what the price point difference would be, and we surveyed some of our dealers and some of our customers about what their reaction to it would be, and the reaction was universally negative. It was absolutely no. It's what, what we like about the Intermountain cars is the fact that I can look down and see all the little ladders and all the little steps and, you know, all the little separate parts. Yes. Uh, ultimately, we made a decision to mold, the, mold that stuff on an end scale. And that was kind of an interesting lesson because Intermountain started as, as really an O-scale company.
0: Now, see, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, Intermountain's first several products were, uh, were O-scale uh, and those cars are all now owned. All that tooling is now owned by Atlas.
0: Okay. So we actually
1: sold that that tooling while I was there. We sold it to Atlas because we looked really close and said, we either need to, you know, we, we either need to be an O scale manufacturer and do a serious series, you know, a series of O scale cars. Look at doing an O scale locomotive. Look at doing structures and all the other stuff, or. We need to focus at that time on HO, which is what we ended up doing. Uh, Over time, Intermountain started making HO scale cars, and they duplicated the HO, the O scale cars. The first several Intermountain models were actually smaller versions of the O scale car. And the selling point there was, well, see, we had all the ladders and grab irons and stuff in O scale. Now we have them in HO. Isn't that wonderful? And then we did an N scale car, and we did the same thing. We made all the ladders and steps and everything else separate in N scale. Well, in N-Scale, the parts started looking kind of bulky. Um, okay. They started looking a little little heavy, just the nature of the plastic. And uh, N-Scalers are used to microtrains. You know, they were used to molded-on ladders very fine. You know, that was, that's how they got their their, de- their level of detail was, look how fine all the detail is, as opposed to look and see my ladders are separate. Mm-hmm. And over time, we decided that uh, the newer N-Scale cars we did, certainly the ones we did when I was there, we molded the ladders and grab irons on and got very positive feedback in N-Scale from that, from the N-Scale customers, but uh, but did not do that in NHO scale. So that was uh, – but I think that was a function of sort of the market niche we were in.
0: Okay. I mean, I certainly become a snob if it doesn't have uh, etched or see-through uh, roof walks on a covered hopper. <laughs> I don't yeah. buy it. I don't want the multi well, the, the other thing
1: I had, I was my, another one of my real pet peeves while I was there,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: ultimately I see they've continued this in some of the cars I see now, is the underbody piping and underbody rigging. I love that to be there. Yeah. Uh, I love seeing it, looking under the car and seeing all those rods and stuff that you see on a real car. But I really hated it when it was plastic. It was, To my eye, it always looked too bulky. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plastic might do, you know, it gets all wobbly and warbly and, and everything else, and it doesn't look quite right. So one of the things we did is, is re- started replacing that with wire. And okay. what we found was the cost to, to put the wire on there was actually the same or slightly just a little more than putting on the plastic part. Because the assembly lines in China were having trouble, so much trouble with the plastic underbody piping Yes. That they were more than willing to switch to wire when we suggested it. They were very enthused about it. So that was actually fairly easy and and was sort of a no brainer once we figured out that we ended up with a better looking car that was more rugged actually. It ended up with a you know, you ended up with a wire on the bottom that was glued into little holes in the in the brake rigging or the wire, you know, the brake components or the or the bottom of the car depending on where it was going. Mm -hmm. And so it was very rugged, but it looked really fine and it looked really good. And, uh, and so that was, that was an easy one to, to get through, and, and that wasn't a problem.
0: Yeah. Well, and I we're see they're still the,
1: doing that with the newer cars.
0: Well, let me ask you along that line. I mean, that's been the trend. Where do you see, even though you're no longer active in that particular part of the business, where do you see the, the next paradigm of detail going to? I, Is there anything I, left?
1: I have no idea. I, you know,
0: rating cushion uh, under frames.
1: <laughs> I think somebody makes one now.
0: I saw an ad, and I thought, I must be misreading this.
1: I think Katie makes one that does certainly act like one. I, I don't know where you go next with it. I mean, I'm not sure where you take HO scale freight cars next. I really think that, I think, you know, when I, when I was uh, at the magazine, just talking to manufacturers, their big thing was, how many paint schemes can I put on this, how many road names, excuse me, how many road names can I put on this model? If I do this 1937 seven A R or car, how many road names can I letter it for and sell? Mm -hmm. Over time, what I've noticed is that it's through a function of just the fact that the prices of the car that you can get for for a top-end assembled model are now at the point where you can actually realistically sell them for $35 or $40 a piece if they're a particular car. It doesn't matter how many road names you can put on it. And, and now we're starting to see, in fact, we did a couple of them while I was at Intermountain. We did a few railroad-specific freight cars, which was just, you know, that, was just, that would have been considered insane 10 years before that. But we did a Santa yes. Fe Caswell Gondola. There's, there's two paint schemes you can put on a Santa Fe Caswell Gondola. <laughs> they're, both, they're both mineral red. They both have yes. ATSF on the side. One of them has periods after each letter in a t s f and the other one doesn't. those are your two paint <laughs> schemes. and we sold scads of those things
0: really okay and,
1: and so it's a uh, so what I think is going to happen over over the years we're going to see more and more uh, railroad specific cars and we've started seeing that with like the Milwaukee road ribside car and uh, mm-hmm. true line trains up in canada did did essentially the the CN's version of the 1937A R-box car which had very very unique ends that were not they were not used on US cars but they were used in Canada so they did those uh, Intermountain and Exact Rail have both done Milwaukee Road ribside cars I would be shocked if there is not a Baltimore and Ohio wagon top box car on the market within the next year
0: Yeah a very you know a very unique car Which
1: when we were coming up in the hobby that was a brass model.
0: It was. You either
1: had to buy a brass model or you had to get that dreadful cannonball car shops kit and try to assemble it. And then, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, it was a resin car. You had to get it in resin if you wanted to have it. And I, I have one. It's a resin model. But I am fairly certain that there will be a BNO plastic wagon top box car on the market pretty soon.
0: Okay. And an is- interesting but related sidelight. The town I grew up in, uh, Huntington, West Virginia, down by my mother-in-law's house, there was the bus barn where the, you know, the what would now be Rapid Transit or the, you know, Metropolitan Transit Authority. In their side lot, which used to be fed by a siding off the uh, Chesapeake and Ohio, was, and this is, I'm talking a time period of the early 70s, was an old B&O wagon top box car still setting up against a bumper the tracks long since removed and at the time it was still setting on friction bearing trucks oh wow but i was back in huntington about five years ago before we moved to arizona and that car was still sitting there. <laughs> yeah there's still although the paint was now mostly you know the blue was long gone and uh the O lettering and the uh i think it had some kind of Emblem on the side, I don't recall what it was, but that was a ghost image. But, yeah, I know what you mean, a very distinctive car. Yeah, and
1: that's that's what I think we're going to see more of. I think we're going to see plastic, more railroad-specific plastic cabooses come along. Uh, Centralia Car Shops, which is Des Plaines Hobbies, uh, we did a number of cabooses for them that we actually tooled at Intermountain. So we did a couple of New Haven cabooses, a couple of Illinois Central cabooses. Uh, but I think you're going to see more and more railroad-specific cabooses over time. I, and and simply because I don't know what else there is left to do. I mean, I was...
0: Well, you've got Rapido bringing out that uh, Canadian prototype caboose.
1: Yeah, that is that's that is one that... Uh, that's that's what I mean. I mean, that's, that's what I'm thinking of. But in terms of uh, rev- revenue freight cars, there's... Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of gaps, especially in the steam to diesel transition era, and then in the in the slightly more modern era. Uh, if you get into sort of like the, the modern era stuff, which I know very very little about, and it's I have little if any interest in it other than just sort of passing curiosity. But I do know uh, Chris Clunet at Exact Rails done a bunch of stuff. But the certainly the transition era cars are pretty well covered. I mean, there's I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's time to replace some of those models that are out there already. You know the red, the Red Caboose X29, the Pen, sort of the ubiquitous Penzi X29 boxcar. You know mm-hmm. it's getting on ten years old probably now. That tooling is ten or fifteen years old, but it was it's still a pretty nice model. I'm not sure you could you know, I'm not sure you could invest the sixty or seventy thousand dollars and get a better model than that. Enough okay. to make people go, Well, I gotta throw out all my Red Caboose X twenty nines and buy this new one. Which of course what the Red time? Caboose one made everybody do with their old train miniature X twenty nines. Okay. When that came out. You know, we, before that we'd had train miniature X twenty nines, which dated from the eighties. And if you hold the red caboose one up to the train miniature one, you'll you'll just throw the train miniature one in the in the swipe meat box. You know, that's all you can do with it. <laughs> you'll look at it and okay. go, nah, I don't need this thing. So that's uh, that's that's where we're at, but it's uh I'm really, you know, a meat reefer, maybe. I've had some of these guys ask me what transition-era car I should do.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Uh, just sort of a standard, as standard as you can get, 34-foot wood meat reefer. No one makes a good one. I mean, there's nobody makes a decent one. A pressed steel hopper car, which is sort of the earlier version of the two-bay hopper, the one that predated the USRA twin hopper. Okay. Uh, that would be that's one that's, that's missing from transition era kind of, uh, kind of realm. A wood milk car would be nice. When I was in Intermountain, we did a steel milk car. Um, and that was, that was very successful, but we never did do the wood one. If I was there, we probably would have done a wood one if I had stayed. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what other, you start getting into sort of too railroad specific when you get into things like wooden baggage cars and and that kind of stuff. I think it gets too railroad-specific too quickly, and that would be really hard to do in plastic. Uh, but the but as far as, as freight cars go, gosh, I think if you if you were to do those and maybe uh, more dressed-up versions of things like the Penzi X31 and the Penzi H21 and H25 hopper cars and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff with the separate ladders and separate grab irons and things like that, Bowser makes all those with molded on parts and I did I mentioned Accurail earlier. I forgot Bowser is the other one that does sort of molded on ladders and grab irons and still does and, and does very well with them. I mean they're they're very nicely done. And I've got several of them on the layout. But it would be nice to have a sort of a really dolled up Penzi H twenty one or H you know X thirty one or H twenty five. Those would be really nice to have. Okay. But again, I'm not I'm not sure there's a, I d I don't want to spend my seventy five thousand dollars doing it. <laughs> I don't have enough confidence. I'll let I'll let anybody else spend their money doing it, and I'll buy you know three. You know, so it's
0: okay, and I'll buy two. So that gives them five. Golly, they're sensing success. Now,
1: now they're down to you know only twenty thousand dollars a car at that point model.
0: <laughs> well, and Joe Fugat can buy the uh, the rest. That's of right, them and put them on the Siskiyou uh, line there. Uh, let me ask you: two, uh, were you there when uh, Intermountain? developed the uh, the Gunderson Twin Stack?
1: No, I had left by the time we... Well, Randy had started that when I was there. Okay. So we had test shots and started doing decoration samples about the time that I left. And Matt Kandinsky kind of carried on with that project. But yeah, I was there when we started that. We had a number of... uh, We had several tool makers that worked at Intermountain who were actually employees of the company. And then we contracted... Uh, with a couple of other tool makers to do some some products, Chris Kloon being one of them, he did a couple of okay. products for us. The Gundersons, the car I was probably most disappointed with during my tenure there that I had, the, I had the the highest hopes for because I really thought it was going to come out great was a nineteen thousand gallon corn syrup tank car, and if it's assembled right and if it's decorated correctly, it does look great. The problem is it's. It takes uh, – you have to really pay attention to the quality control on that particular model. And the reason is there's sort of a bottom piece that fits into the tank. Yes. And that leaves a horizontal seam or can leave a horizontal seam across the car where there shouldn't be one on the prototype. Oh. And it's designed to have kind of a knife edge that that blends perfectly in and, and seats in correctly. And if you seat it incorrectly, and really pay attention to what you're doing – and take a few little uh, swipes with a with an emery board on that seam. You will you will never see the seam when it's when it's primed and painted. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I've seen a number of the assembled ones. Anytime I go in the hobby shop or go to a train show and see them, I, I always look at those, uh, and I see a number of them where the seam is really obvious, which tells me they're not really assembling in the way it was intended, and and that's a problem that you know we we assume too much about how diligent they were going to be in assembling those cars. So that was probably the one I was most disappointed with. Other than that, it looks great. It's got all kinds of neat piping on it. And, you know, the rails are wire with brass stanchions that stick out. The Mm
0: -hmm. the etchings
1: that were done for that car were just amazing. Um, But that's probably the one I was the most disappointed at about those cars, those um, what I'd call the more modern cars that were marketed for a while under what we call the Pinnacle Series, were tooled by a guy named Randy Wilson down in Southern California, and Randy was the guy who actually did several of the original Genesis cars for Athern. So Randy's a really skilled toolmaker, and that's. But his interest is in very modern cars, and he's the one. He would come to us with projects. He, I'd really like to do this car. I think it would be a good seller, and and nine times out of ten, I'd agree with him that he had a good idea. And the Gunderson car was one of the was was one of his projects.
0: Well, yeah, I. When I was uh, in the last years of my career at ACF out in St. Charles, we had built uh, one of the prototype of that twin stack with the big bulkheads on the end, and they brought it out to the, to the tech center and actually called all the employees out into the, into the lot where the N&W had spotted the car. and Yeah, there was a speech about the new wave of uh, intermodal traffic and so forth. So I bought two versions of the car. I bought the A-Line kit. Mm-hmm. And then I bought a ready-to-run. Okay. And it's like you said about the, the tank car. If you put it together properly, because I bought the super detail kit and all that stuff, but I had 80 hours in that car. Yeah. And there were still aspects of it that I wasn't happy with because I I had to go to pictures on the internet because there were, there were kind of step gaps in the instructions. Oh right, especially oh, I remember
1: that. bending the airline and stuff. I had I had to try. To, we but, had to try to teach the Chinese how to build that.
0: Oh, but you know, so I got the new ones and I saw. Okay, I could have done this better and so forth. But you know, when they're weathered up and they're going in a in a twenty unit train, no one sees those little flaws. Yeah.
1: Well, we had, or
0: to me, what were flaws? No one sees them. They just see a. A really interesting car going down the track. That, you know, there's weather. Well,
1: when I got to Intermountain, we had a situation where we had done the F-unit in HO scale, and we knew we wanted to do. We had announced an N-scale FT locomotive, Uh and we knew we wanted to. We knew we had to finish that up, and it was really causing us a lot of a lot of issues. Uh, It was a very difficult project. At the same time. The company had committed to build a model of the International Space Station for NASA, <laughs> and so we okay. had we had sort of this separate thing going on that was quite honestly a huge drain on resources and attention. I mean, it was really a it turned out to be not really worth it. It was a beautiful model, but it's you know it's a big model of a spaceship. Um, but the but doing all that really wrapped up our in house tooling resources, and so. When I got out there I took a look at what we had coming up and I said, We have nothing new coming down the pipe and the one one thing in the model railroad business is if you don't have something new, you're you're dead. Yeah. I mean you've gotta you've gotta have something new. And this is sort of in the golden age of two thousand one and two thousand two through about two thousand four. I mean, every manufacturer was announcing all kinds of stuff from under I mean, everything under the sun was being announced. So if you didn't go to a show with four new announcements, people were just yeah, get out of here, you know, we'll see you later. And they weren't giving you the time of day. So I thought, we've got to come up with some way to, to do something that, that number one, gets some product out there, and number two, gets some you know, get some enthusiasm drummed up. Well, I had established all these relationships with, with people like Don Titchy at Titchy Train Group and Joe Delea at A-Line and a couple other guys while I was at the magazine. Uh, a guy named John Green, he runs a company called Bethlehem Car Works. And so I thought to myself, I said, well, these guys have things that they've always sold as undecorated plastic kits. And I wonder what it would take to get these things put together, assembled and decorated overseas, and then sell them as decorated models and the Their part of the deal was we would buy from them bulk quantities of parts in numbers that they had never seen before. Okay. Our deal was that you know we had the, we had our sunk cost of the parts we'd ship them over we'd take care of all the all the assembly decorating and et cetera you know. That would be our risk, you know, we we'd contribute that to the project. So they'd basically get to sell us their parts and we would and we would sell and sell the cars painted and decorated with their name on the label. So people knew it was a Titchy car, or knew it was an A-line car, or knew that it was, you know, a, a PFE car or knew, you know, knew it was a Bethlehem Car Works car. So we set up these partnership deals with these different companies and that was really successful for about two years. Uh, we did a lot of that. I mean, that was really sort of a lot of our new product came from that. Now, the problem with that was a lot of those cars were, they were tooled and designed. They were very nice models, almost universally. But like you said, they were really designed for the model railroader sitting at his workbench, puffing on a cigar, I guess, and, and fiddling with the parts. You know, it was designed to be, you know, I I really need to get this just right and put that on and and glue it on and go, okay, that's – and let it dry for a couple of minutes and then come back to the next piece. It was not designed to be passed from one assembly worker to another at an assembly line. You know? Okay. So we really had some yeah. we had some interesting challenges with teaching the Chinese how to build these things. You know how to drill all the holes in a Tichy hopper car and those little thin pieces of plastic on the end. You know the end of a Titchy hopper car. So we'd ended up. You know we might buy a thousand bodies from Don Tichy, but we'd buy two thousand ends because we knew they were going to destroy half of them. So it was <laughs> it was a real learning experience. But the A line cars were part of that partnership thing originally. And uh, although Randy, who had tool who tooled some of our modern cars for us, Randy Wilson, like I told you, he had actually tooled those for Joe years earlier. I mean, he had done that as a project for Joe. So he actually did tool both the A-line Gundersons and the uh, and the Well cars that Intermountain did under our own name because we eventually did a set of Well cars too. So
0: this has been an amazing conversation. I make it to the local hobby shop uh, typically on a Friday afternoon and. You know, Bob's there and Bruce's there, and, and we just BS industry stuff. And now you've just given me this whole resource of uh, <laughs> names to drop and so forth. No, this is uh, very interesting.
1: Well, these guys were all good friends, and I really enjoyed working with them over the years. And, and I do get a thrill out of uh, – although I feel – I'm out of the loop, you know, but I feel like if I want to contact them, they all, they all remember me, so I – I'm thrilled about that, so I, I do like that.
0: Or if you run into them at a show. I do
1: all the time. I I, I have no lack of people to, to visit with and chat with at the show. And, and all the guys, uh, I, I have to say, too, that don't get the idea that the model railroad industry is cutthroat. It really isn't. Um, when I was at Intermountain, the guys at Atlas, the guys at Athern, you know, the guys at Deluxe Innovations, the guys at Microtrains, Katie, whatever, they were all really good friends. I mean, they were just... This wonderful guys that we help each other out all the time, or we would help each other out all the time. You know, there would be some nudge-nudge, wink-wink, you know, hey, Marty, we want to do a Central Vermont RS-11. Can you hook me up with somebody who can give us some paint samples or something? And, you know, and I'd know the right person. You know, I could just, I guess I could just as easily say, no, you're competitors. I'm not going to help you. Well, yeah, you know, we didn't make an RS-11, and and I really like CVRS-11, so I proudly have a couple of them on my layout. <laughs> so it was and and it would be the same yes. way i'd ask them for help with some things that we were doing and they were extremely helpful that you know the guys at atlas were very helpful with with you know some of the erie lackawanna stuff we've done and you and they're all all into those railroads over there so it was it was a lot of fun and, and they're really good guys and and we partnered with them on a number of things you know we bought a lot of locomotive parts from atlas uh like mm-hmm. I said, we sold them our O scale tooling and they've reissued all those cars over the years. I think they've reissued them all now at this point. You know, we bought I was when I was at Intermountain, I would regularly buy fifteen to twenty thousand pairs of Katie couplers every month. Wow. So believe me, Katie picked That's up huge. Katie picked up the phone when I called.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, and you could you know, there was there was a time when, when people thought, Oh, Intermountain's trying to make their own coupler and that was that was just, I'm not sure why they did it. It was before I got to Intermountain, but it was probably not the best plan. But certainly that's water under the bridge now. And, uh, you know, we, we put KD number five couplers on all the assembled cars and locomotives. And that was a huge deal when we did it. I mean, that was a really big deal. And then we started using microtrain trucks and couplers on all the N-scale cars. And that was a really big and And so it was a, it was a lot of fun to deal with those guys. I mean, I had, had a really good time. But, uh, but life goes on, you know.
0: Well, Marty, I tell you what, it's been an incredible uh, time. I've enjoyed the uh, the information you've shared, especially the inner workings there at uh, Intermountain and the processes you guys used. I mean, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you taking your time to be here tonight.
1: Oh, enjoyed it, Paul. I had a, had a chance uh, to, to think back about some stuff I haven't thought about in a few years, and, and I've really kind of enjoyed it and, uh, and uh, wish you well with your layout and with your modeling.
0: Remember... The, Marty's column in uh, the new issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine: Getting Real, Flipping the Piers. Golly, you've got trials and tribulations just like the rest of us in building a layout.
1: Yeah, some some days it seems like I probably should have started with a track plan, but that wouldn't have been any fun at all. So I just
0: I, I picked up on that. I identified <laughs> with uh, not having a track plan. All right, Marty. So have enjoyed it. You have a good night. All right, night. you too, Paul. Take care. And that about wraps it up for this Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. Hope you'll join us for the next show. Thank you and good night.